How's it going, Andy? Very good. Just to start, let me let me introduce Andy. Andy's a machine learning intern here at Slingshot, and he's currently doing his master's in machine learning at the University of Cambridge. Welcome, Andy. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about the present and future of programming for machine learning. Andy will talk about some topics like frameworks in machine learning, libraries, the relationship between software and hardware, and uh, yeah, what's changing in the space. Andy, what's the current state of programming for machine learning? So like everyone who works in ML would definitely just default to certain packages right now, right? For example, if you're doing research, it's always Python plus usually PyTorch. And then if you're using large language models, you probably use Hugging Face. And then that's like the common stack that you use with GPUs, right? So TensorFlow, TensorFlow used to be a thing. Has TensorFlow like thoroughly died? So I still find it very surprising that like, I think on the Stack Overflow survey this year, I think like 70% of people are still using TensorFlow. Wow. Which is crazy to me. I mean, it, there's probably a good reason why, uh, for why that's the case, because it's probably more suitable for industry use cases. And it's much better in terms of like inference and serving and deployment than PyTorch is, uh, at least a year ago or so on. There's a lot of changes recently that might not make that the case, but at least some, for legacy reasons, most people are still stuck with TensorFlow. Isn't it possible to just like take a PyTorch model and convert it to TensorFlow though, or like convert it to some other framework for inference? Yeah, there's lots of like export formats that people have figured out. Like for example, ONNX, Open Network Exchange. Onyx? Onyx, yeah. It's an open format for exporting your models, right? So in theory, you can export it from PyTorch and run it in TensorFlow. But obviously the problem is you have this two worlds problem where you need your code in PyTorch and you also need your code in TensorFlow. And then the models has to match up the weights at the line up correctly so that you actually can load the model correctly, right? And for teams that want to work, go faster and like develop quickly, that's not usually the time you want to spend on rewriting your same model, but in TensorFlow and making sure everything works, right? If you make an API change in PyTorch, you have to change it in TensorFlow as well. So for a lot of the state-of-the-art stuff I've been seeing, almost everything's in PyTorch. Do you think that the, tensor, the fact that TensorFlow is so dominant is just like a legacy thing, or do you think it's people using, you know, out-of-the-box scripts more in TensorFlow? What would you guess? Like, have you spent more time with TensorFlow or PyTorch teams? So personally, I haven't spent that much time with TensorFlow, but I've used quite a bit of Jax as well. TensorFlow and Jax are qu- quite tightly integrated in terms of how they execute their code, right? They both depending on something called XLA, Accelerated Linear Algebra, which is like a compiler for turning your code into something that can be executed, into instructions that can be executed by accelerators, like GPUs or TPUs mostly. And JAX is cool because it's designed from scratch only for this use case. It's not like TensorFlow where there was like a lot of legacy reason. There was like TensorFlow 1.0 and most people didn't like it. And now there's 2.0, but there is some compatibility things that had to worry about, right? And JAX is a redesign of that that makes it much more economic to run networks like that, similar to TensorFlow. Personally, I think JAX and PyTorch are almost currently converging into the same direction. So PyTorch used to be this super dynamic framework where you have uh, tensors all lying around and you have all your operations are eagerly executed. So if you do a tensor A plus tensor B, it just executes it directly. It doesn't care what the rest of the computation is. It just runs it right now. And whenever you have more operations to come later on, it just continues executing it. 
Whereas Drax, at least that used to be the case. And whereas with Drax or TensorFlow, they build up this, the whole computation graph before executing a small part of it. So when you do Drax.jit or TensorFlow compile your graph, you construct the whole computation graph before you actually execute anything, which means that there are benefits to why this is a good thing. For example, you can basically look ahead in terms of what the next operation is. So you can save some work for your current operation, right? Whereas if your Oracle is eagerly executed, you can't really do that. So basically PyTorch is easier to write because everything executes eagerly, but like compiling makes a big difference. I know PyTorch 2.0 also introduced a compile feature. Do you think that'll give it parity with Jax? Yeah, exactly. So that's what I said. Everything used to be the case. Now when recently we we had PyTorch 2.0, which basically introduced this the similar compiling feature into PyTorch. So what it does is when the interface is still the same, it seems like you still define the whole, all your functions are still executed eagerly, but under the hood, it actually tracks all the operations you've created. And once you've done the first pass, it constructs the whole computation graph for you under the hood. And then for a subsequent pass, it just reuses that computation graph and it does, you can do optimizations on top of that graph as well. So it's sort of converging into the same direction as where Jackson TensorFlow was heading. From what I've heard, like Jax is still pretty new. It's like one of the various new like front-end frameworks where you know they're cool and they each have their own features, but still seems like React is dominant. Do you think that that's true? I, mean, I know in addition to Jax, there's also Julia and Mojo. Do you have much experience with either of those? Yeah, I haven't done much of neither Julia nor Mojo. I've obviously Mojo just came out, I don't know, maybe like two months ago, three months ago, and it's got a lot of community traction. There's many reasons why it's set up for success, right? One of the biggest selling points of Mojo is that it's Python. It's a superset of Python to be more accurate. Right now, it's not actually a superset, but like they hope like in a year or so, it will be a superset of Python. And that solves a lot of problems where we had projects before where we tried to move our machine learning framework away from Python because Python has its problems, for example, mostly for it's terrible at threading. It's usually pretty slow if you want to do something that's computationally intensive, right? And the bigger, bigger problem is because of that, because it's slow, if you do something computation intensive, you have to go out of the Python world to C world, to Fortran world, to Rust world, where you call all these bindings and you get good performance, right? But if you're just a Python programmer, like, Anyone who has who has used NumPy or PyTorch would face the same problem where you try to go to definition and it's just a C binding and you don't know what's happening under the hood, right? Yeah. And that's... So you can't debug it and you can't edit it and you can't build on it. Yeah, exactly. What, what if I want to insert a print statement inside of the torch.add? You can't do that, right? Because it's just a C binding. And so there are many problems when you have multiple worlds happening at the same time. It's a bad developer experience. And so... And so moving away from Python can be nice. With Mojo, would you have bindings in another language or is it all Mojo to the bottom? Yeah, so Mojo, in theory, it gives you all the performance you would ever need if you can use some of its features. But by default, it's just a Python superset. So if you're just running same Python code that you have, you get a little bit of speed up because they did some optimizations on the compiler side and so on, but not the massive speeds that you would take it wouldn't get you to speeds of like NumPy, for example. But in theory, you can opt into some of those features, which is still Mojo code, and you would be able to get similar speeds, which solves this problem where you have one programming language that's suitable for the whole stack. You can opt into certain features when you actually need it as well, which makes the development experience much nicer. And it's not the first programming language that solves this problem. For example, Julia 
it does has a lot of cool dynamic features as well, and it also can can run super fast. But the problems of Julia, for example, it's it's not Python. So yeah, am I correct to understand that Julia sort of just didn't go very far? At least like in machine learning, there was this promise that it would like replace Python, and it's made barely a dent. Oh, it's still a project that's ongoing. It's a pretty big project, right? But one of the yeah. reasons why why it hasn't got that much traction is because we had so many people st- stuck with Python and know Python so well, and there's not enough motivation to for them to switch over to Julia. But there's still a chance for other languages, I guess, like Mojo, especially because Mojo's learning from those lessons and trying to focus on being a Python superset, make it much easier to migrate to it, and maybe it'll change how machine learning engineers program very fundamentally. Yeah. In terms of typing, I guess that's also a big topic. Python 3.11 is introducing variadic generics for typing of tensors. I don't know if you followed this topic. Yeah. Yeah. So typing is like really frustrating as a machine learning engineer, right? Really hard to figure out what goes into it and what doesn't. And it's really easy to have errors way down the line because of, you know, issues with typing. Have you hit that? Yeah. I mean, there are many reasons why MyPy is a good option, right? There are typing helps to catch bugs makes your code more maintainable. But sometimes, specifically for like machine learning use cases, we might not necessarily care about benefits that you usually get from like a typical software, from a software engineering perspective. Like from a software engineering perspective, typing is great because it helps helps you catch bugs, helps you define a peer interface and makes your code more maintainable. But like for machine learning projects, maybe sometimes you just want to hack away, right? You don't maybe don't care exactly if your type is an int or a float or or a torch tensor or an umpire array, right? As long as you can add them all to each other. Yeah. So typing might not be the most, like for the maintainability perspective, it may not be the most important for machine learning, but there are cases where the compiler can kick in a lot of optimizations if you give it this correct types. So for example, if, if you can't really optimize a Python function that much because when you says it's an int, well, at runtime, you can also pass in an umpire array and it might still work, right? So it can't really optimize it that much. But for stuff like in Mojo, for example, if you give it a lot of type hints, it will check, make sure that it's actually an int. And also because of that, because it could guarantee it's an int, it can do a lot of optimizations on top of that. So there's also like performance reasons why typing is important. So typing will come at odds with the optimizations, which is sort of going to be an interesting dynamic then. Do you think that there's like a world where more professional machine learning goes in one direction towards one language with more typing? and less professional goes more towards the Python direction where everything is just increasingly slower than alternatives, but a lot easier to build? I think depends on what you say by professional, right? I think even in like large big tech companies, like, I don't know, Google, OpenAI, for example, they will still have teams where they are hacking away, trying to find the next most important thing, right? And perhaps in many of those cases, the stability is not the most important concern. They just want to boot very fast. And making sure all your type, you pass all the type checks might not necessarily be the most useful thing in those cases. And so I guess there's importance where you can choose into opt-in or opt-out of those certain things. And when you actually need it, when you, for example, when you want to port your implementation into production, then you want to add all those guards to make sure that you're not tripping over yourself. That makes sense. Do you think that programming for machine learning will require more or less uh, hardware-related code? That's, this is just my speculation, but I feel yeah. like we will always go into the direction of getting more, more and more specialized in terms of hardware. So we started off with single-core CPUs, then we have multi-core, and then we get GPUs, now we have TPUs and all these PUs, right? 
which are getting more and more specialized. But there are very good reasons why we want to do that, right? Because they give better performance and we can optimize them better than what we have so far. So, so when you say more specialized, are you imagining like a return of TPUs? From what I could tell, like TPUs are still definitely not dominant compared to GPUs. Is that true? Yeah, I say, I mean, in terms of how performant they are, I'm not too sure, but I'm pretty sure TPUs are at least on par, if not slightly better than GPUs in that, on that regard. One of the reasons why they're not as popular might just be that Google doesn't sell them ah. as, as much as Nvidia sells GPUs, right? But there are reasons why they don't want to sell them. For example, maybe they just want to keep an edge in terms of that. That might, yeah, speculations. I don't know for sure. But or do you think it's just a naming thing? Like, do you think Nvidia just brands their TPUs as GPUs and Google brands their GPUs as TPUs? Well, at least from what we know, they work in slightly different ways in terms of what the current generation, at least. From my understanding, TPUs are even more specialized than GPUs. They basically only specialize on matrix multiplication, which is quite similar to what tensor cores are doing nowadays on GPUs. They can handle matrices, if I'm not mistaken, they can handle matrices of something like 128 by 128, which is like fairly large, whereas GPUs are currently operating on a smaller scale. I don't know exactly what the spec is for the latest like H100 statement of change something, but GPUs don't necessarily have to do matrix multiplication. They are also generally programmable to optimize these highly parallelizable algorithms, that, kernels that you can write. So they're slightly more general in that case and more malleable, right? If you have this new algorithm, you can still run it on GPU. It will be decently fast. It's not going to be as fast as those matrix multiplications there because they're so optimized anyway. But yeah. you still get decent. Pro- Whereas like for TPUs, you can't really do it, anything else. So do you think that when you say getting more specialized, do you imagine like a transformer processing chip coming soon? Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, we're adding more and more support for specific operations, right? I think H100s have like special operations for sparse tensors specifically, mm. right? And maybe we might be going to the direction where the next step of matrix multiplications is sparse matrix multiplications. So sparse tensors, I know there's obviously quantized is also a big thing, right? Like quantized, mm-hmm. ready chips, what else is there? And like special numeric types, it's for example, right? They're adding like FP4, so like four bit floating point numbers, for example, right? I don't really know how, how you can utilize that right now, but... I know there's self-attention, now there's flash attention as a mechanism. Mm-hmm. Is flash attention going to be relevant on the hardware level or just software level? It's an interesting question, right? Because the reason why flash attention works is basically because it's highly optimized for this specific GPU architecture that we're working with right now. It's optimizing stuff like we, we're not doing unnecessary memory accesses where we might be recomputing stuff, but because like accessing memory is still expensive, it's more worthwhile to recompute that stuff, for example. And so the origin of this algorithm is because we have these architectures which are slow at memory, but like pretty fast in computation, right? And so as we evolve our hardware, these algorithms also need to adapt as well, right? And it's a really interesting case of like software and hardware integration, yeah. building algorithms that are specifically built for certain hardware. And it's a big problem of how we evolve these software as we get more and more hardware, right? Because by the next generation of GPUs, maybe the algorithm just becomes irrelevant at all. And what do we do? Do we rewrite the whole code base to do something? Or how do we maintain something like this, right? Every three years, we get a new GPU. Do we, we have to rewrite our code every three years. That's pretty bad as all, well, right? So in these cases, we can talk about like software abstractions. For the most part, 
machine learning models haven't changed that much over the last few years in terms of the code. And it has been lower level operations that get optimized. Big libraries that focus on hardware level optimizations include like Hugging Face Accelerate and PyTorch Lightning. Do you think that we will be able to maintain those abstractions? And even though the lower level hardware optimization might change some of the lower level software, do you think that most machine learning engineers can just safely ignore this? Or do you think that this will permeate all of machine learning? Yeah, I think many of these libraries, like Hugging Face, for example, they're very ergonomic for the common case. So if you just want a language model, you just want a BERT model, right? It's like super easy. Basically need needs two lines of code, like literally two lines of code, and you have the model in your hand. So you can do whatever you want with it. But in cases where you want to get into the model, do some tweaks, change something, mass out the attention, change the attention scores and so on. You can't really do that. You had to you basically had to pick out their definition of their model and like insert stuff inside. So and I don't think there's a good solution to this as well, right? Because if you add all these knobs that the user can tweak and so on, you get like a library that's already like super complex. Like hugging face is already pretty complex. If you add more, it's just gonna be quite unusable. And so I think what we need is some sort of like gradient of abstractions where the user can opt in to which level that they actually want. If you're a researcher, you probably want something pretty low level. Maybe you just want PyTorch, and which gives you all the flexibilities that you want. But if you're just deploying a model, you can go a layer above, import some libraries, and get pretty far with that as well. I think it's hard to design a library that's like for everyone. Yes, that makes sense. So you might have multiple. So in terms of the future, we were talking about these different languages, different frameworks, different libraries. Do you think then that machine learning as a field, as it grows, will just diverge and different machine learning engineers will, you know, especially on development versus optimizing inference, will will just be doing totally different things? Um, I mean, that's certainly the current trend, like we're facing this problem. Yeah. There are solutions which we're proposing. For example, Mojo is yeah, yeah. potentially one solution to reconcile or like alleviate this issue. Have you heard of Megatron? Megatron, is that the one by NVIDIA? Yes. Yeah. So if I remember correctly, this might be a few months old now, but uh, for a long time, Hugging Face recommended that if you wanted to train a language model efficiently, they should just use Megatron rather than Hugging Face and then migrate the model over to Hugging Face when you're done. Yeah, do you think that as we get more and more hardware specific, that that kind of pattern will emerge? Like, will NVIDIA turn into a software company? Quite possibly, yeah. I mean, NVIDIA already builds lots of tools for deploying and developing machine learning models, right? They have all these libraries, like I think there's like 10 of them for different use cases, right? And you have situations where there are different barriers to why this is hard to migrate between deployment and development, right? One is the code programming language, right? It's usually the NVIDIA will write in CUDA or like C, and then you have someone else that writes in uh, with some Python bindings and you have Hugging Face that's completely Python. But there's also... I think it's not just the programming language. There's also like inherently lots of complexity that you sort of need to hide away for like your Python bindings to work or like to be used by a typical Python developer. Otherwise, it's just gonna like even if you give it the opportunity to dig into all the source code and it should understand it, it looks like Python and so on. It's still lots of too much complexity to like to fit to put into one's head, right? Yeah, and historically, Nvidia. Like CUDA is a really nice level of abstraction because there's very little in terms of PyTorch plus CUDA that you have to think about. But when it comes to like Megatron, it's not the best library to be using as a developer. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I haven't really checked out the library myself, but 
I could imagine like if you're trading something of that, you're having a library that's that complex. It's probably quite hard to navigate as well. I think eventually we will have interfaces that are able to separate out the optimization part and the coding part where you describe the intent. And there are, I think there are lots of opportunities. We are heading into that direction where lots, we just hand off a lot of those optimizations to a compiler and it just all does all the magic for you under the hood. There's also problems with that, right? For example, you, we always know that in many other languages as, as well, it's hard to tell what the compiler is actually doing. Yeah. Like, okay, it's supposed to do something smart for me in this case, but it's not actually doing that. What What did I do wrong? Or what did the compiler do wrong? And it's really hard to debug what's happening. But that is one solution to handle all this complexity. It's just hide it away and give it, hand it off to some other machine to deal with it. Do you think that we'll have smart machine learning based compilers? I don't think that's impossible. Like there are many. So for example, when you're compiling something like a Triton kernel, so right now OpenAI has a library called Triton, which basically generates CUDA kernels based on some Python code that you are based on code that you write in their library and it generates kernel for you. And there's tweaks that it has auto tuning features, I think that allows you to say, okay, there's these, all these hyperparameters on how this algorithm can possibly be executed. Just try all of them and see which one's the fastest. And see what works most quickly and then, and then use that. But there are cases where you have so many different combinations of options that it's not possible to try them. Yeah. So maybe you can have algorithms that fix good combinations of, um, hyperparameters to try, which basically becomes like a machine learning problem and so on. And so right now, like if you run a massive model, like right now we still need compilers to be fast. Like if, if they're like, Machine like a GPT four level of speed, it's going to be quite useless. But I can see that in maybe in the in the future where speed is not the bottleneck. Yeah, we can totally do something like that in in the compiler. Yeah, that would be interesting. So we talked about compilers. I know we've talked about quite a few interesting topics about the future of programming, the frameworks, the libraries. Yeah, in general, when it comes to the future of machine learning, it sounds like you're very much expecting more and more specialization as the field grows rather than more standardization. Do you think that there is some element where as the field settles increasingly, things do standardize? As in, transformers have recently become like a dominant way to do machine learning. But before transformers, there were you know CNNs and RNNs. There were some semi-standardized things, but the field did seem like it was changing more quickly in terms of like the patterns that people follow. Do you think that there will be room for more standardization now that a few specialized approaches have become increasingly dominant? I think by the current currently, it's all developing extremely quickly and right, and so it's hard to pull everything together and say, okay, this is the standard that we should need, right? Because we don't really know which direction we're going in. But there's, I'm also aware of there's like a lot of community effort, like many projects that tries to do this unifying job, right? One that I'm aware of is called Ivy. So IVY. So it's like a machine learning framework, but it tries to say, okay, we have, you can pull all these, basically, especially with how PyTorch is working right now, all these machine learning frameworks are basically doing the same thing under the hood. They define a slightly user, different user interface for a programmer. And they also support different backends, but basically in the middle layer where they construct this computation graph and execute it, they do something very similar. Maybe you can try unifying that for all the frameworks. So they have this project is basically saying we can define a unified interface that we can map the front end of these languages into that it constructs the computation graph. 
And then we have all these different backends that can execute the computation graph. So and what would be the benefit of this? So it sounds like this is somewhat like the opposite of standardization, right? As in, instead of standardizing, create one common interface that can interface with a lot of backends. Is there a benefit to having a lot of backends? I think there is because, well, depends on how back your backend is, right? Because there's also many levels of abstraction in the backend level, right? But for example, if you diff- target different hardware, then you certainly need different authorization algorithms or compilers for that, uh, right? And I don't think that in the short future, we're going to have more unified hardware. I think we're going to have more and more specialized hardware for use cases. And so... So do you think it'll be like JAX programmers build for TPU and PyTorch programmers program for, I don't know, H100s and then like, I don't know, Mojo programs for GraphCore or something like that? But that, that doesn't, doesn't have to be the case, right? Because all those machine learning framework, at least on the front end level, they're basically trying to find an economic way to define your computational graph. Yeah. And once you have that graph, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to use Torch backend. You don't have to use the, you don't have to use the GPU. You don't have to use the TPU, right? You can switch between the two. So basically what the project is trying to do is decouple the front end and the back end, saying that you can have, you can mix and match between what front end and back ends you want, right? You can have a JAX front end, which defines like a JAX computational graph, but you can actually execute it in PyTorch. Interesting. So when you're a new player coming in to this machine learning framework scene, you don't actually need to implement your own backend. Like if you have this brilliant idea of we don't actually want to define our networks similar to the way how PyTorch is doing. Maybe there's some other better way that we came up with. You just need to implement that front end to map it into this intermediate representation. Right. And why would you not just do that in like PyTorch or JAX? Well, because presumably you found a better user interface for developing machine learning models, right? For example, in the case of TensorFlow and PyTorch, like PyTorch has this reputation of being very easy to write. Yeah. Whereas TensorFlow is usually a bit more complex, but it suffers from a bit from performance. So in theory, uh, at least now you can capture a graph in the way you write PyTorch, but execute it in the TensorFlow backend. Yeah. It's interesting because I think for most of what I've read, TensorFlow actually tends to be less efficient than PyTorch, not the other way around. I think that might just be a historical perspective. That uh, Do you know for sure, if, are there cases where TensorFlow actually is more efficient? Certainly before, I think, especially in deployment, for example, where... Yeah, yeah, on the inference side. Running PyTorch for inference isn't a great idea. For example, if you don't have a Python interpreter, yeah. how do you run... You can still run a PyTorch model, right? There's the C++ API and so on. But it's much more trickier, I think, than TensorFlow. Yeah, and there's... Torch serve as well, their Java API, which I think is uh, a very nice one, actually. I don't know if you've seen that. I've not tried Torch serve before. Yeah. Anyway, awesome. Okay, so this transpiling. Let me ask one more radical topic before we end. What about no code? Do you think that there's uh, going to be a big future in no code AI? Yeah, I think the, as we've discussed that just now, right, we, we probably have this uh, spectrum of how deeply integrated you ought to be, whatever hardware you're using, right? You can pick and choose whatever level you want, right? And I think at the top of the level is no code, right? You just have some graphical interface and define your network and it trains and so on, right? And I think one of the reasons why we haven't seen no code being as popular right now, it's just because it's, one, it's, it's easy to demo, right? But it's hard to put into production. You Once you want to serve your model, what do you do? You still have to do something on 
to extract the weights and put it somewhere that's like decently fast, right? So one of the reasons why it might not have got that much extraction is because of performance. But maybe say five, 10 years down the line where our hardware is like, like five, 10 times faster. Maybe we don't care about performance. Like we don't care about being like 20% slower. It's basically the same speed anyway, right? So, hmm. so do you think that the reason why no code is not more popular is because of the efficiency basically of putting it into production? Like, I'm wondering, just as an ML engineer, if you had a no-code option, would you use it? Like, would you appreciate no-code? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, by definition, no-code means that you have less options to tweak, right? And right now, the case is that those options are actually really valuable. If you take those options away from me, I don't know what to do. Like, I can't make my model good. Yeah. But in the future, maybe we don't actually need those options to make our model good. Or, like, we can make it super good or, like, good enough, which might be good enough for many people. I mean, I wonder if, I think part of what you're talking about is sort of lowering the bar to entry. And I wonder, like, is machine learning the kind of field where, you know, even if every company becomes an AI company, just like every company has a website today, that doesn't mean most companies use no code to make their websites, right? A lot of them still use code to make their websites, even if they're using contractors to build them. In machine learning, that's what I guess I wonder, is there ever going to be a point where you actually want to hire people who don't want to write machine learning code, and yet you're still building machine learning models? Possibly not like hiring a specific person. If you're going to the step of hiring someone, you probably want something more that you just can't do yourself, right? But there are probably quite a lot of businesses out there like that can't afford to hire anyone to do something like this, right? Or it doesn't make sense for them to... Like, you're running a restaurant. Why would I hire a machine learning engineer? to like analyze, analyze our sales or something, whatever, right? But yeah. Like if you're but if no code is an option then it's like and we can make it cheap as well, right? And very accessible, then there's a good portion of that chunk in the market where they could get access to these technologies as well. I would agree. So no code sort of unlocks a different persona, the kind of people who wouldn't want to be writing code and for whom it makes a difference. But I would be skeptical that for someone like you and me, where we yeah. like writing code where we are like looking for more code interfaces. And actually when we, when we go to like a no code tool, we're like, is there a way I can write code? Like code isn't a blocker, right? Like code is a joy, I think for, for someone who writes code. So I think no code might be valuable for personas who really, where code is a burden. But yeah, I can't imagine that there's really a world where the kind, where, where there's the kind of people who today would want to write machine learning code, but actually be like, no, I would rather use no code. That sounds like more fun. I think even if the options, you know, like you're talking about the options, even if the options weren't strictly necessary like they are today, I would still appreciate them. And I, I don't know if I'd see a real benefit of seeing them go away. Mm, I mean, I don't know if this is like a correct metaphor to draw, but like currently we have GPT-4, which is pretty low code yeah. compared to what we have to do before, right? If you want to run some classifier, you would have to write a PyTorch for loop, do the backpropagation and trade it. Right now, you can just make an API call. And I, I wouldn't say that takes away any of the fun of the process, right? Because basically, you can <laughs> spend your effort onto something that's not training a classifier, right? You can do something else that's probably more, a higher impact, right? Would there be a case where we just don't have to do anything? GD4 just solves all our problems, and we can just all retire? I, I'm not sure. Um, Is this a similar world, though, to one where, you know, like, would this be any different if GPT-4 were the one doing our machine learning for us? Would that be specific to machine learning or would that just generalize to like just a lot of software, or a lot of processes more generally? I have this slight speculation that like if like GPT-4 is just especially good at doing machine learning related stuff because anyone who develops GPT-4 
are machine learning engineers and they care about that the most. Um, so it could be that we actually make GPT-4 better at machine learning before other stuff. Could be, but I, I don't tend to think of machine learning as like so easy that, you know, if, if the kind of people who do, who train GPT-4 also build software, right? Yeah. And that's why Copilot has been like the highest impact machine learning, you know, at least LLM project ever by like a huge margin. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's possible that software engineers as a whole just disappear as a profession. Or, yeah, I mean, because I, I would wonder in that world that you're describing where you do more high-impact work, would that, yeah, is that real? I don't know. Would you would you take a machine learning team and repurpose them or would you just fire them? I think the people adapt, right? And I mean, this is almost going into the AGI direction, right? If it's going to replace software engineers, is it going to replace your yeah. um, your chef? I don't know. Um, and then, but yeah, but I think people will adapt, right? If you had a company that was specialized in training email spam filters 10 years ago, right? It's probably still around. It's just doing something different right now. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. Anyway, it was a lot of fun having you on. Thanks for chatting through the future of machine learning. We're excited to see your work. Andy has a bunch of cool projects he's built at Slingshot that we're going to be posting online in the next little bit. So uh, keep an eye out for that. That's a wrap for today. Thanks so much for joining us. If you're an ML enthusiast, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or at hello at slingshot.xyz. We'll be back with more next week.